this morning. This um, story is recorded in three of the four Gospels. You always make note of that in terms of emphasis, right? Mark tells us that this young man who has a confrontation with Jesus this morning is rich. Matthew tells us he is young. Luke tells us that he is a ruler. Probably that means that he is a ruler in the synagogue. So you put those things together and what do you have? You have the story of the rich young ruler. Now you think about a man who is rich and young and a man that has power and authority and instantly you think that here's a guy who's got it all. He's the complete package. You can imagine if he had his resume on eHarmony.com or something like that, he'd get a lot of activity along those lines. But this is a young man who you would think he is the kind of person that possesses all of the things that this world values, the kinds of things that people think we need in order to have a satisfying and fulfilled kind of life. Our culture, specifically this culture right here, places a very strong emphasis on wealth and on fame and even on youth. You know, more so in the United States of America than other cultures. Other cultures, they value older people more so. Wisdom that comes with age. But in our culture, we're really big into pop culture, youth, and prosperity, and that kind of thing, where um, youth icons uh, in the United States have huge influence. People want to know what they have to say. And much like this rich young ruler, he is attained. He is successful. People look up to him. They want to be like him. He's like a modern-day Mark Zuckerberg, right? The founder of Facebook. Here's a guy. He's 29 years old. He's worth $29 billion. There are 1.3 billion users on Facebook, about the size of China, the most populated country in the world. Of those 1.3 billion users on Facebook, about 527 of them like Calvary Chapel Capitola. So that's pretty good. Thank you, Mark Zuckerberg, for that. I was in the startup niche space. There were people uh, there that idolized Mark Zuckerberg. He was an icon. They looked up to him. It was sort of a target to be a young, entrepreneurial, successful kind of individual. And that is exactly what we're looking at this morning with this rich young ruler. He's not the kind of person that seeks advice. He's the kind of person that people seek for advice. He's the kind of person that people want to know what he has to say. He's actually the kind of person who you would think would be going to Jesus to give him some advice, some career advice, or some leadership skills training. Because as we know at this point in history, we're just a few weeks away from the final weeks of Jesus' public ministry, and his ministry is dwindling away. The crowds are leaving. His disciples, not the twelve, but the disciples, the seventy, a lot of them are following him no more at this point. And yet, and yet it's clear from this passage that this young man, you look at verse 17, we're not in the text just yet, but if you look at verse 17, he doesn't just pass by Jesus. He doesn't just happen to run into Jesus like at the marketplace or something like that. He doesn't even walk to Jesus. It says he came running. So there's an urgency here. 
in this young man to meet with Jesus. We also know from the same passage that for all of this man's wealth and prosperity, his age, which means his health as well, his fame and fortune, all of those things were told he's a humble and respectful young man because that same verse says that he knelt before Jesus and that he did publicly. And so if he's one of the religious leaders, as it would seem that he is, that wouldn't have been very popular within his community. Yet he's humble and kneels before Jesus because for all that he had and all that he was, somehow instinctively, like many young, well-off people today who kind of in some way think that they have all the answers to life, but deep down instinctively they know that there's something missing. And that much at least is to be admired in this rich young ruler, that he comes and he uses his mind to consider the most important question that anyone can give consideration to. And he asks the most important person this most important question. And that, of course, pertains to eternal life. The difference or the problem is going to be in how he receives Jesus' answer about eternal life, contrasted by another group of individuals that we begin our text with this morning in verse 13. Very different kind of response. Check a look, and you'll see what I mean here. Verse 13, it says, Then they brought the little children to him, and he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. When Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. The word for little children there means that they're toddlers. So you're talking pre-K and maybe even younger. And Jesus is like, no, you let the little children come to me. Teach little children about Jesus while they're young. That's what he's saying there. Charles Spurgeon once said this, before a child reaches seven, teach him all the way to heaven. And better still, the work will thrive if he learns before he's five. And that's why Jesus was displeased with them because of the way in which a child receives God's word is the very way any human being, any adult, needs to receive God's word. And so the illustration here, take a look, verse 15, he says, Assuredly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, that is, in the manner in which a little child does, he will by no means enter it. In other words, faith in Jesus Christ is a simple, childlike kind of faith. That's what's so wonderful about a child, right? They are believing of things. They have hope. They want to believe in the truth of the gospel if we teach it to them. They're not old enough yet to be skeptical and cynical like some of us have or had become before we came to Christ. And so a childlike faith is just simple and wanting and eager to be receptive. And the difference between a child also and an adult is a child is happy to receive a gift without any strings attached. They don't feel like they have to work to earn it. Very different from most adults. And so verse 16, and he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. And you know why? A child 
or a person with a childlike faith has no problem receiving the blessing of Jesus because they have no problem believing that they don't have to earn it. They have no problem believing that God will just love them simply just because he does and that he might pave the way for there to be a relationship between a child and God. They're perfectly accepting of that. They don't pretend to be independent of their parents. But adults sometimes think that they've got to earn it. They've got to work for it. And herein lies this contrast that I wanted to establish between the way a childlike faith works and the problem that this rich young ruler is going to have. Let's take a look at the story. Verse 17, it says, Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, which was never a title that anybody had. No rabbi was referred to as good teacher. Good teacher. He said, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? This is the most important question that anyone can ever ask. But typically, rich people don't ask this question because they're rich and they feel like they've got heaven on earth. People with power and authority often don't ask this question because they have power and authority. They feel like they've accomplished what they need to accomplish they don't consider heaven that much. Young people often don't ask this question because they're young. They don't think they need to worry about it just yet. So rich young ruler, and nevertheless, he asks this question. I think it's an honest question. I think it's a sincere question. However, the problem in the question is the way in which he worded the question. He said, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And we'll come back to that in just a second but first Jesus stopped him on a point when he said good teacher right that was going to get Jesus to respond and he does verse 18 so Jesus said to him why do you call me good no one is good but one that is God now don't misunderstand Jesus is not denying his deity he is merely affirming that only God get this please listen only God is quote good. So in essence, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, do you understand what you're saying when you call me good to this rich young ruler? Do you understand what you're saying? Because either the rich young ruler knows that Jesus is God and that's why he calls him good teacher or, or quite possibly like so many other people in this world, this rich young ruler has a misconception of how God defines good. And I tend to lean in that direction. And the reason I do is because of the way that he asked the question. He said, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? There's a few too many eyes in that question. You know, like there's no I in team. There's no I in salvation. There is, but you know what I mean, right? There's an I in salvation, but... It's not about what I do, it's God's work. And this belief that we can somehow work for our salvation or be good enough to earn our salvation in this world is basically universally accepted today. That if you just do a little bit more good than you do bad, or if you just avoid something really, really bad, then it's heaven for everyone. That's basically what our culture believes today, and that cannot be more wrong. 
Salvation is a gift from God that cannot be earned. And I know some of you are like, listen, I've been hearing people like you say this for 10, 20, 30 years. How much longer am I going to hear this? As long as you keep coming to church. Because it is the predominant view in our society today. It's the predominant view in this city of Capitola today if you were to take a straw poll and say, what is the way to heaven? People would say, do a little bit more good than evil and you'll get into heaven. That would be the prevailing view of our society and it is so wrong. And you know I'm right. Think about the last funeral you went to or every funeral you've ever been to. Nobody goes to hell, ever, in any funeral. Now, I'm not saying that's the time to dwell on it when someone's died, but it's like, I mean, have you ever said, oh, man, Uncle Bob passed away, and it's sad he never gave his life to Christ, so he's in hell now. Never once do you ever hear that in a funeral. Someone dies, they're always in heaven, right? That's the way that our society works. Unless you're like an axe murderer or you're Hitler or Genghis Khan, everybody goes to heaven, and that is a very, very dangerous doctrine. Two huge problems with that doctrine. Number one, it contains a very, very shallow grasp of the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. And number two, it also is an unrealistic, grossly overestimated assessment of humanity's goodness, that we are good or that we can be good. To think that I can undo the sin and the harm that my sin has done in God's world with some religious activity is an affront to God. You think that he sent his son to suffer the kind of death that he did um, as a means of getting the ball rolling on salvation? No, that was the sacrifice completely. And you cannot add to that. On Wednesday night, as Pastor Vince was teaching the men, he said, you try and add to Christ, you start taking away from Christ right away. It's an affront to God because all of our righteousness is filthy rags, the Bible says. Your best. It's not just you, it's me, it's all of us. Our best, our most sacrificial self. You know, the part of us, the selfless ounce of us on our best day is filthy rags to a holy God. And so this rich young ruler has the problem of thinking that eternal life is something that is about earning or deserving, when in reality it's almost ironic that as he bowed and knelt before Jesus, he was closer in that moment to what salvation looked like than anything he would ever, quote, do just by taking a knee and by bowing. But that's the problem, as we're going to see tragically. He really doesn't want to take a bow. He really wants Jesus to assure him that he's already, quote, good enough. And so Jesus here takes him through a brilliant process by which he demonstrates to him and to all of us and any reader of the scriptures by which we see through a very calculated and clever discourse that nobody, nobody is good enough. Watch this thorough treatment by the master. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He answered, you know the commandments, verse 19. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So Jesus begins by quoting commandments 5 through 10. You know the Ten Commandments? 
5 through 10, what's known as the second table or what would have been on the second tablet of the law. These are all horizontal commandments. They have to do with how you and I treat one another. Okay? Commandments 1 through 4 are all vertical. They have to do with our worship of God, which we'll see is going to be this young man's big hang-up. Okay, and we'll look at that in a little bit. However, when you look at commandments 5 through 10, these are the kinds of commandments that the average person in this world looks at with a clear conscience. They look at these things and they go, oh yeah, I'm not guilty of any of these things. Yet Jesus came along and made that almost impossible. Actually, impossible. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, oh, you don't think you've murdered before? Well, if you've ever had hate in your heart towards someone, you're guilty of murder. You've never committed adultery? Well, if you've ever had lust in your heart towards someone other than your spouse, then you're guilty of adultery. Or you've never stolen before? If you've ever coveted in your heart, you're guilty of stealing. In other words, he took all sin that was external and outward, as the rabbis taught it, and he said, sin begins in the heart, and it is an issue of the heart. That's what he's saying here in this particular instance. And so with that understanding, the response from the rich young ruler, when he said, you know the commandments, when Jesus said that to him, his response should have been like, well, obviously I'm guilty. I can't keep the commandments. No one can keep the commandments. But that's not what he said. Verse 20, and he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And probably part of the problem for this rich young ruler is that he was probably a decent and fairly moral person. There are a lot of people in this society, I would say the bulk of them, if you ask them, are you a good person? They would say, yes, I'm a good person. We use the term even loosely as Christians. Oh yeah, they're a good person. But biblically, technically speaking, that's the point that we're debating here. Are they good people? I have an uncle on my wife's side of the family who told me one time, he said, I'd never harmed a person in my life, ever. He said, I've never hurt anyone's feelings. I've never lied to anyone. I've never hurt anyone physically, mentally, spiritually, you name it. And he was serious. And I believe in his heart that he really believes that, that he's never broken one of these commandments. But the truth is that that is not true. In Romans 3, we went over it about a year or so ago, quoting from Psalm 5 and Psalm 14. It says, there is none righteous, no, not one. And then it says this also. It says, there is none that does good, no, not one. See, I could get the first verse. There's none righteous. Okay, fine, because only God is righteous. There is none that does good. The Bible says, no, not one. And this is Old Testament. This is Paul quoting from the Psalms. So this is knowledge that the rich young ruler would have had before he came to approach Jesus, that he was not good. In fact, they should have taken into consideration the sacrificial system. What was the sacrificial system a reminder of as they continuously went back time after time again to offer up a sacrifice was a reminder that they were what? Not good. That they were sinners. That they needed to offer up a sacrifice to appease God for their sins. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus here doesn't debate it with him. He doesn't, at this point, debate it with him. He doesn't need to. He instead uses it 
as an opportunity to reveal to us the true purpose behind the law. Take a look. Verse 21 says, Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. You just circle those two words. Don't forget that. Don't forget that that's what the purpose is here. He's not trying to win an argument or prove a point. He loved him. I said it last week. I'll say it one more time. Surround yourself with people in your life who will love you enough to tell you something that you don't want to hear that God says in his word. Surround yourself with those kinds of people. I'm not talking about people that will just pick you apart because they like to be critical. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that love you. That love you enough to tell you what the Bible says about a particular situation. Because Jesus here is about to give this man a hard word. But he gave him a hard word. But Mark wants us to know ahead of time, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he said it. He loved him. And said to him, one thing you lack. If it was Joe Shoup, it would have been 400 things you lack. But he said, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, Jesus is not saying that you have to give away all of your stuff to go to heaven, or that if you don't, you'll go to hell. I addressed this a little while back. I'll give you 15 seconds on it. But I heard a professor from the University of Notre Dame on national news broadcasts quote this and say that that's exactly how you inherit eternal life. That is so bogus. I have no idea what Bible she's reading. The second that I give away all of my stuff, does that now damn you to hell? Could you imagine that'd be like a hot potato? No, take it back. I don't want it. No one would want anything because if they had something, then they wouldn't have been able to get eternal life. Clearly that's not the case. So then why does Jesus say to this man, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor? Well, I'll give you two very good reasons why he does. Number one, the problem this young man has is he wants Jesus to tell him that he is basically a good person. But Jesus can't tell him that because he's not a good person. Whenever somebody says to me, well, I'm basically a good person, I ask them one question. You can use this. It works like a gem. Just try it out. Define good. Just take me at my word. Just try it and watch them spin all over the place trying to define good. According to the way the Bible suggests what is good, they're going to have a hard time with They're going to have a hard time with that on any arbitrary scale of just defining good. And that's the problem here. The book of James says that the law was meant to be like a mirror. So that as you looked at it, you saw what kind of person you were, meaning you're a sinner. As you see the law, you go, that's me. That's what I am. I am those things. That's why there was a sacrificial system. That's why I need a savior. Remember the fonts back in happy days? When he would look himself in the mirror to adjust his hair, he'd go, hey. Because there didn't need any adjustment, right? Well, that's what some people do when they look into the law. When they look into the mirror of themselves, they go, hey, commandments, I got them down. And that is to be very, very misguided. 
to be very misguided because what Jesus does here is he takes sin to another level. Not just the commandments. Sermon on the Mount, he said it's an issue of the heart. Now he goes one step even further to cover all bases in case anybody dare say, I'm not a sinner. Guess what? There's sins of commission. He just introduced a new kind of sin, sin of omission. Meaning this guy was wealthy and he could have done some good things with his money, couldn't he? He could have helped out poor people. He could have given away money to charity and things like that, but he was unwilling to do that. Maybe he did in some instances, but he could have done more. Everybody is guilty of sin of omission. In other words, it's not necessarily that you did something bad, but was there ever a time in your life where you could have done something good, but you didn't step in and do something good? The Bible says that that's sin. The Bible says, he who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So now I say, even if you look in the law and you say, hey, I look good, you're guilty even of the sin of omission. Opportunities you had that you could have done something good, but you didn't do it. And so rather than debating with him, rather than arguing the point, oh, come on, don't be a liar. You broke the commandments. You're lying right now. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, you lusted in your heart. I know I can read your heart. He doesn't say that. He introduces a whole new level to us saying, look, whether it's the Ten Commandments, whether it's a sin of the heart, or whether it's a sin of omission, you're all guilty. Every single one of you. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody is good enough. Okay? So, number one, that's why he told him, give all you have away. Because he wanted him to know, hey, you had opportunities. You've had opportunities. You've missed out. You're not perfect like you think you are. You have not kept all the commandments from your youth. But number two, what might have been getting in the way of this young man was maybe he was a fairly law-abiding person. And I mean law-abiding meaning the law of Moses. Maybe, in theory, he had kept commandments 5 through 10, at least as they were interpreted at the time. He had kept them all since his bar mitzvah. He had kept them all. 5 through 10, never made a mistake in his life, and yet he's guilty of commandment number one. He's guilty of commandment number one. What's commandment number one? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And number two says something about idolatry. And he went away sorrowful because he had many possessions and he didn't want to part with those possessions because they were the master passion of his life. God does not ask you and I or everyone in the world to give away all of their possessions, but he does, he does ask us to put away our, our, our idols, the things in our life that rise in terms of importance, above our God. And so that can be true of anyone about anything. My idol could be, uh, you know, sports and entertainment. Your idol could be alcohol or drugs, or your idol could be uh, a person in this world, or your career, your reputation, my pride. Any of those things can be idolatry in a person's life. In other words, either Jesus sits on the throne of your life or something or someone else does and Jesus does not want to share lordship with another. And so this, went, this young man, he went away proving Jesus' point that he loved riches more than he loved God, that he loved his possessions more than he really wanted to inherit eternal life. Understand, he's not blowing Jesus off. He's not mistaken in terms of what Jesus is telling him. He gets it. He gets it so much that he goes away sorrowful because he understands what Jesus is saying. And Jesus doesn't flinch either. You notice how Jesus doesn't run after him here? 
He doesn't go, oh, wait a minute, I try that on everybody, it almost never works, come on back here, we'll do plan B. He doesn't do that. He lets him go because he is absolutely unwavering and unapologetic in the call for this young man to repent of what had become idolatry in his life to the point where it was going to get in the way of God sitting on the throne in his life. And I love that God is that way, that he will give it to you straight. A hard word in love, but a hard word. This is what's preventing you from eternal life, this idolatry idolatry in your life. That's what God is. You know, in this world today, very rarely can you get a straight answer from anybody. God will tell you straight up the truth about your heart and your soul. If I come to you and I said, hey, what do you think about my haircut? You all go, that's a good haircut, Pastor. Come on, you don't really like it, do you? Some of you are like, yeah, that's a good haircut, but I didn't get a haircut. That's the thing. Or whatever the case may be, what do you think about my sweater? What do you think about my shoes? That's how we are. You know, we tell people what they want to hear. God tells you what you need to hear. That's the difference. He gives it to you straight. He gave it to this young man straight. So you think, well, I think he's kind of rough on him. I mean, he's a pretty moral guy. He's pretty decent. He's asking an honest and fair question. Why is Jesus picking on him? He's not. He doesn't want his disciples, and he doesn't want you and I to think for one second that he doesn't take idolatry in this most serious sense, you know, to the point where it could be something that could destroy potentially this young man, get in the way of his soul from going to heaven. That's a heavy subject. Specifically and contextually here, the sin here that he's struggling with uh, as it relates to idolatry is riches. And Jesus here continues on this because of how important it is. It says, then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. And we'll see that word astonished in a minute. So I'll explain to you why they were astonished. You'll be surprised. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. The desire for money is a trap that gets a hold of people sometimes. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this, But those who desire to be rich, by the way, by that wording, desire to be rich means I don't have to be rich to potentially be guilty of the idolatry of riches. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. For the love of money, you know it, is a root of all kinds of evil for which it says some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. And so Jesus concludes, verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Which is a proverbial way of saying it's impossible. It's a crazy notion for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Understand, make no mistake here, that what Jesus is saying is that materialism and greed are serious threats to the soul of a human being. And the reason specifically this sin is, is because money has a way, and possessions have a way, of fixating a person's heart on this world and on this life in a way that people that don't have access to those things can't. 
it can really grab a hold of a person. All idolatry, don't get me wrong, is dangerous. But money as a threat to one's salvation might be sort of in a class all to its own. Because, number one, the allure of more. Because everyone always thinks that they need just a little bit more no matter how much they have. Almost everybody in this room, and I'm not trying to read your mind or bust you on this, because it's me too. We almost always think no matter what we have, if we had just a little bit more, we'd be content. That's part of the problem with riches. But the other problem is the value that society places on riches. No different then as it was now, people with wealth were esteemed in that society. That's why they were astonished. Take a look and you'll see what I mean. Verse 26, and they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Now that seems like a bizarre response. When Jesus says it's hard or near impossible for a rich man to get into heaven, they say, well then who then can be saved? Because they had a little prosperity theology going on back then. They thought back then that riches were a sign of God's favor in your life. And this world, and I'm not just talking about the prosperity theology teachers of this world. I'm just talking about the world. People think that if they have a lot of money, that that must be a sign that God favors you. But it isn't always the case. It isn't always the case. It can be, but it isn't always the case. you got examples in the Bible of very godly people that were very, very poor and very, very godly people that were very, very rich. But if a celebrity today, and they don't know God, and you and I know they don't know God, and they say, oh, I just want to thank God for my blessings, because we believe that they're blessed. This society does, because they have a lot of stuff. The disciples sought the same thing. So their idea was, well, then who can be saved if a rich person can't be saved? And Jesus said this, but Jesus looked at them and said, with men, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Abraham, David, Solomon, Job, Matthew, Barnabas, Zacchaeus, Joseph of Arimathea, all rich men, all in heaven. So can a rich man get to heaven? Yes, but only by the power of God. Otherwise, it's impossible, absolutely impossible, which is good news. Good news for you and me. You want to know why? Because relatively speaking, if you live in the United States of America in the year 2014, you're rich. You have more modern amenities by far than everyone in the world, and you certainly have more modern amenities than the rich, young, ruler. without any shadow of a doubt. Go home and get some ice out of your freezer and tell me if I'm wrong about that. Turn on your television or your lamp, whatever the case may be. Take a shower. All of those things. We're wealthy people. We're a privileged people. We're a blessed people. Praise God. But that doesn't mean then that we can't head to heaven. Because with God, it's possible. Listen, all salvation is impossible for man. What are we doing here? This is a church. Put up a sign. We're a church. We're in the business of the impossible. It cannot be done. What are we trying to do? We're trying to bring people to the kingdom. We're trying to God's power. Trying to them we can't do it. Only can. Well, Peter then thinks he had it figured out. Ah, I see. It wasn't the money that was the problem. 
okay? So Peter jumps in. I always love how Peter jumps in here. He's willing to offer up a suggestion. And he's close. Verse 28, then Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and followed you. Peter's saying, I get it. I get what you're saying. It wasn't that he was rich that he couldn't get into heaven. It was that he was unwilling to sell all of his stuff and follow you. And that's close, but it's not quite there. But that's why Peter's trying to cover his bases. He's saying, we left all, right? I left Peter's sports fishing business behind and glass bottom boat business, and I left that behind to follow you, Lord. And so did the other guys. So we're in, right? And the reason that the rich young ruler is seemingly not getting into heaven, we don't know that he didn't later repent, let's hope we see him in heaven, is not because he wouldn't leave his riches behind per se. And the reason Peter gets into heaven is not because he did per se. The reason ultimately that the rich young ruler doesn't get into heaven if indeed he doesn't is because he wouldn't put God first in his life. And Peter would. And that ultimately was the difference. And by the way, the very sad part about the story, because what Jesus asked the rich young ruler to do, that he was unwilling to do, which is to give up everything, in essence, when you come to Jesus Christ, you give up nothing. And that's what, how Jesus concludes this section here. He says, verse 29, so Jesus answered and said, surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Well, that's a one caveat there. There will be persecutions. But he says nobody gives up a relationship. Nobody gives up possessions. Nobody gives up wealth, he says, that won't be rewarded a hundredfold both now in this time, he said, and, end of verse 30, in the age to come, eternal life. Verse 31, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. To the general public, if anyone was getting into heaven, the rich young ruler was that guy. He was first. But from God's eternal vantage point, the disciples, who from the world's vantage point were last, they were first, because they were willing to put God first. To me, that's why this story, which was repeated every day throughout this world all day long, is so very sad. Because this rich, young ruler, in reality, was very, very poor. Not just because he missed out on following Jesus, but because of why he missed out on following Jesus. All he can see is what he has to give up to follow Jesus. But what good do riches do one second after you're dead? How many countless number of rich people have died now, are facing eternal judgment, having left their riches at death's door? Lost in all of this discussion, which is, again, the saddest part, is what he would be gaining if he, choose, if he chose to, quote, give up, all that he had to follow the Lord. He'd be gaining, number one, eternal life, which is what he was seeking in the first place. He wanted to know how he would get eternal life. And when he was told, here's how you do it, he wasn't interested. Number two, he would be gaining forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin, a clear conscience. Those of you that are born again of the Spirit of God and you have a clear conscience, 
concerning your sin because Jesus has thrown it as far east as is the west, what would you trade in this world for a clear conscience? A glass bottom boat? Would you trade anything that this world has to offer for a clear conscience? I don't think so. No comparison. Number three, a better life now. Somehow people think that riches and um, prosperity and popularity are better than a life of following Christ, discipleship of Christ. Probably the most miserable people I know are people that are wealthy, protecting their money, always concerned about their investments and their portfolio and their stuff, insurance claims and wills and all these kinds of things. It's not an argument to, to be poor or that there's anything wrong with having stuff. I've made that pretty clear. But I mean, you can be very miserable living your life for the things of this world. And living your life for God is just a better life now. It's not just about heaven. It's a better life now. Number four, the body of Christ. That's something that we get now. Go back to verse 29. We're almost done. But look what he said. He said, so Jesus answered and said, and he was talking about what they would give up, right? To Peter's point. Jesus answered and said, Surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or father or mother or wife or children's or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold. Look what it says. Now in this time, what is he talking about? He's talking about you're not going to give up, although you might lose a friend or a family member. You might be persecuted when you come to Christ, but you will gain the body of Christ. If I were to go home today and I was to come to my home and find that it was burned to the ground, I'd have a hundred homes in this church body of people offering for my wife and I to stay. If for no other reason than that everyone loves my wife. And you would too, because you're a part of the body of Christ, and we wouldn't let you be homeless. And the same thing, if my parents were to disown me, I'd have some folks here want to wait in line to be my parents, and I'd happily take that. Some of you already parent me, and I appreciate that. And finally, the last thing that he's given up is the most important thing of all. What he'd be gaining in giving up all his stuff is Jesus. That's better than everything that this world has to offer. Jesus Christ. If they someday come up with a cure for death, they're not going to, I don't think. <laughs> but if they come up with the cure for death someday, I don't want it. And I'm not saying I don't want it because I'm brave, because I'm not brave, I'm a big chicken. But I don't want it because I want to see Jesus. And death is your only ticket to Jesus outside of the rapture of the church. I want to see Jesus. How about you? You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus, Jeremy Camp saying. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Amen? Father, we to gain what he cannot lose. Amen? Father, we